You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 185, and I'm Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this morning by Dr. David Grubbs coming at you from Houston and Houston Baptist, I almost said Bible University, but Baptist University. <laughs> uh, they do read the Bible there, don't they, David? Oh, yeah, yeah. We got a whole like a whole department for it and such. So I wasn't far off. Also joining me on the line from Minnesota is Dr. Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College. Michael, how are you this morning? Pretty good, Nathan. Oh, and as you can tell, listeners, I'm, I'm sleep definite hard, so uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm always responsible for what I say. Michael's taught me that over the years, but uh, I cannot anticipate what I'm going to say today. <laughs> uh, I do... And what a subject, what a subject for you to be uh, off the leash. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. Uh, I do want to make a quick note that uh, Sectarian Review, one of our shows here on the Christian Humanist Radio Network, uh, is experimenting with some new uh, forms. Sectarian Seconds uh, is a new brief uh, show that's going to be released periodically. Uh, It's not going to be the long conversation that you're used to with uh, sectarian review, but instead it's going to be either Danny Anderson solo or Danny Anderson talking with one guest for a brief span. I haven't had a chance to listen to the first one, but uh, it is Danny Anderson, so you're probably going to enjoy it. As uh, I what say else? Uh, frequently, sectarian review is the best podcast on the internet. There you go. Uh, any other activity on the network you guys want to pitch here? Pita Schoolman is back. Yes. So he had a he had a couple weeks off, but they're back. Mm-hmm. Have we got any also, re- recent profiles to pitch? A couple I did. Um, I did an interview with Stephen Lind about Charles Schultz, and I did uh, an episode with John Kessler, who wrote a book about rest. I think it's a really important book, so buy the book mm-hmm. or listen to the podcast, or preferably both. Very good. And I do want to say the rest of us have not quit doing Christian Humanist profiles. Michael uh, just... Had a lot of interviews in a row there, and I don't have any in the in the foreseeable future. So, yeah, yeah. For the for the next few weeks, you're going to think that I took over the show, but I didn't either. It's just we are uh, streaky here lately. So, uh, I will say, listeners, just in case uh, this becomes an issue, I hope it doesn't. Uh, if you have some technical difficulties getting episodes in the next few weeks, uh, we are moving to a different server company for our audio files. If I am not an utter moron, that should be seamless. You shouldn't have to change anything on your end. That said, I'm not going to guarantee that I'm not an utter moron. So uh, with that said, uh, today's subject matter uh, is a movie that all three of us agree is not one of the great masterpieces of cinema. Uh, it's not necessarily a film of any theological depth or philosophical import. 
But it is, I'm going to argue, uh, one of those artifacts uh, that, ha- that has left its mark on pop culture. Uh, and so we're going to talk about Top Gun today, and I'm going to start talking to David. David, I'm going to argue that Top Gun is not the sort of movie that would be great if an archaeologist discovered it somewhere <laughs> after 30 years. But it's worth a little bit of conversation because it's a Paramount Bruckheimer film, and those films you know, left a big footprint on the 80s. It's a young Tom Cruise feature. Of course, he's become a figure in the cinema. It's a Cold War melodrama, and generally it's sort of a fixed point in 80s pop culture. Uh, So let's go around the horn. David, we'll start with you. When did you become aware of Top Gun, and if your stance towards it has changed in the last 30 years, how has it changed? I became immediately aware of Top Gun when it came out. Not because I watched it, because in 1986, I wouldn't have ever been let anywhere near that film. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But because it led to uh, either the introduction or the acceleration of jets being a a part of my world as a little boy. Um, 1986 marks the year that I began to subscribe to Boys Life magazine. And I remember very early on, because I kept it for years, uh, a special episode that they did about current American fighter jets with uh, charts and blueprints and awesome shots with stats. And I didn't know what a mock was, but these planes went that. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them, too. <laughs> yeah. And... You know, I, I I just remember thinking it was super super cool, and and all of it was accompanied with allusions to this movie that I wasn't allowed to watch, called Top Gun. So this so this is a moment that's that's actually a lot like the way we began uh, our Back to the Future episode. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I was in a culture that Top Gun happened to, and so you know, uh, uh, leather jackets were super uh, bomber jackets were super cool and apparently Tom Cruise was super cool and fighter jets were super super incredibly awesomely cool um this is this is also what led to me going through a uh, a model airplane kick though my allegiance has pretty quickly switched from modern fighter jets to world war 2 fighters i just mm-hmm. like pro- i just like props better <laughs> do you guys remember the this may be a, a, a case where the whatever six-year age difference between us makes a difference, but uh, do you remember the uh, the fighter jet fruit snacks? No, I do not. Yeah, that was a major part of my childhood because the stealth bomber, <laughs> the stealth bomber, had just come out, and I remember them adding it to the fighter jet uh-huh. fruit snacks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, remember how big the stealth bomber was? Like, oh cr- yeah, like crazy! Everybody was so excited about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I I, I remember getting a uh, for for Christmas getting an entire set of model airplanes that was all um, Desert Storm. So you had like a Warthog, and there was a a, a stealth bomber, stealth fighter, and I, I can't remember what all it was. I think there was an Apache. What, was there the torn bodies of Iraqis? No, that that did not actually feature. They in, left those in, out of the fruit snacks set. too. Strangely enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't there. Um, 
how has my stance toward it changed? Well, for one thing, I didn't see the movie itself until I was an adult uh, with my wife, actually. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the mileage, you know. I, 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 I don't know that I was as impressed with it as I would have been back then. Um, you know, the jets are still kind of neat. Um, aircraft carriers are still pretty neat. But there were just a lot of things in the film that I didn't believe in the performances and the relationships. <laughs> and I couldn't follow the dogfights. Uh, maybe I'm just really, really stupid at this whole spatial intelligence thing. But I could never <laughs> figure out where any airplane was in relationship to any other airplane. So I'm like, oh, look, a picture of an airplane. Except oh, when they're the walking. one was upside down above the other. <laughs> that that I got, you know, got a great Polaroid of that one. Um, yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. Otherwise, it was just like, oh look, there's another pretty fighter jet, and they have a lock, or they don't have a lock. <laughs> and I'm still not exactly sure what "have a lock" means. It's something to do with firing. I got that. Oh goodness. Well, Michael, what, what's your Top Gun story? I was vaguely aware of it, not because of Boys Life magazine, but because there was a really terrible game for the original Nintendo Entertainment System. Oh, I had that one. Oh, <laughs> it's, it, like that, that game is itself a case against licensed games, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. But I never saw it until, again, my wife made me watch it. It is one of her favorite terrible movies. So we watched it when we were dating, <laughs> then we watched it last year, because um, when the website did dissolve still existed they used to do a movie of the week and we would always watch it so we watched top gun then i hated it when she first showed it to me i hated it even more when we watched it again last summer and uh i did not rewatch it for this episode because i can only assume that i would hate it still more <laughs> but i've never liked tom cruise the only thing i've ever liked tom cruise in was magnolia where he where he really deconstructs the tom cruise persona oh he really does yeah i mean i that 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 trio of movies, Vanilla Sky and Minority Report and Magnolia, I think is really the only Tom Cruise that I like as well. I don't like him in Minority Report, although that's a fine that movie's fine. I just I don't think the movie would be demonstrably worse with with anybody other than Tom Cruise. And Vanilla yeah, Sky, I'll, I'll, Vanilla Sky was a pretty big turd, in my opinion. Honestly, I enjoyed it. So well, you know, there there's you no go. accounting for taste, right? <laughs> indeed indeed well i i like david i was a kid when this movie was in theaters my parents had the good sense not to let me see it uh it is, uh, it is strangely rated right this is a pg movie it's after the pg-13 rating was introduced there is no reason this should be a pg movie yeah no it's really not i uh, yeah it's definitely an odd rating um you know as with, I'm going to guess, a, a fair number of people of my generation, uh, I watched it for the first time on VHS. Uh, you know, when we were all staying over at someone's house, we waited till the parents went to sleep and then put it on because <laughs> we, we wouldn't have been allowed to see it while the parents were awake. Um, you know, it, it was a source of, you know, honestly, sort of conversational banter uh, all the way through my high school and college years. Uh, even people who had never seen the movie, um, you know, would toss top gun lines back and forth at each other. Uh, mm. you know, and when I was in uh, grad school, my roommate at the time, Dave Pecha, 
he and I had a, a certain stable of movies that we didn't necessarily watch. We'd always be doing some kind of work for grad school, but we just kind of always have them on the TV in the apartment. This was one. A Few Good Men was one. Uh, Bull Durham was one. So, you know, it, it was sort of part of the uh, atmosphere for several of my years. Now that I watched it again, you know, prepping for this episode, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to defend this movie uh, <laughs> in terms of cinematic criticism, but it still remains a uh, fascinating piece for pop culture reasons. You know, in and some like, ways, in some ways, Nathan, it's the first like music video movie. I that, that that thought is not original to me. I can't remember where I first heard it, but I mean, it, it yeah. is it is an action movie that really only could have existed after MTV. Yeah, yeah, I mean that this one and Rocky 3 which came out, you know, there in the early 80s as well. Uh I, I think of both of them as as music videos with muscles. I'd forgotten <laughs> about a few good men. I like that movie even though Tom Cruise is the lead. Again, I don't I don't necessarily think I like it because of Cruise. I don't think his performance is anything special, but that's a good movie. Mhm. Mhm. Well, anyway, Michael, uh, Pete Maverick Mitchell. Let's talk about him. He is a stock character. If the big screen, if, if the big screen has ever presented a stock character, he is the young, arrogant prodigy with killer instincts, but no respect for authority. <laughs> this strikes me as an American type all the way down. So, tell us about some of the antecedents for this character type on the page and on the screen. It is definitely American, but it does not begin in America. Let me give you a few characteristics first. This character has to be the absolute best at what he does, because if he wasn't, um, his arrogance would make him entirely unlikable. Mm -hmm. His disrespect for authority has to do with his being the best, and it comes from a sense that that, that respecting the authorities would disallow his freedom. And so his highest value is either freedom or success, because those two things are hand-in-hand with him. It's a very libertarian character type in that sense. It is not an uncommon trope in works about the military or the police. And in fact, it's such a cliche that I think it would be more unusual to find a protagonist cop who plays by the rules. Yeah. (laughs) The uh, the sitcom community had a joke about this a few years. It was actually its first season. Um, Two characters, like, become security guards, and they fight it out over which one of them gets to be the... uh, uh, the uh, the cop who's the, not by the books, the maverick cop, I guess is the right term. The loose cannon, right, right. And they go back and forth throughout the whole episode. There's no, there's never, a, there's never a by the books cop. The er example of this though is Achilles, who is the the best of the the uh, the Greek fighters, and who has absolutely no respect for Agamemnon because Agamemnon's stepping on him. Hmm. Uh, but really, if you look through the history of post-1970 action films, you will find dozens and dozens ex- of examples. Let me give you a few. Axel Foley from Beverly Hills Cop. Mm-hmm. Uh, John McClane from the Die Hard movies, although he's in his way pushed into it rather than choosing it. Dirty Harry, of course. Mel of course. Gibson's character Riggs in the Lethal Weapon movies. Mal Reynolds from Firefly. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and his predecessor, uh, Han Solo. Perhaps mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. The line between the corrupt cop and the maverick is not always a clear line. So Denzel Washington in Training Day probably belongs to this type, although you read him totally different because he's he's um, he's maverick in a kind of wicked way. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Hawkeye Pierce, of course, from MASH, both the movie and the television show. Um, and, and Hawkeye's a good example because Hawkeye is a pretty good surgeon, but he's not the absolute best. It's just they can't get rid of him because there's nobody else to take his place. So maybe it's not so much that the character has to be the absolute best at what he does, but his position has to be secure in whatever miniature society he's moving in, either because of his skills or just the lack of better candidates. Mm -hmm. If we move this to a more intellectual realm, we get people like Greg House, Temperance Brennan from Bones, Sean Spencer from Psych. And and what's interesting about all three of those people is they're often teamed up with a more lawful character. So um, Wilson from House is more lawful than House. Brennan is teamed up with the relatively by-the-books FBI agent um, Booth. And Sean Spencer, of course, is with Gus, who is mm-hmm. deeply lawful in the uh, the old Dungeons & Dragons alignment categories. <laughs> uh, it's also, it's yeah, also Mulder and Scully. Mulder and, yep, very good, Mulder and Scully. Um, a real-life mm-hmm. example, Douglas MacArthur. Um, and MacArthur, you see the limits of the character type because he is, of course, deposed from his position in the in the Korean War because the powers that be were afraid that he would start a war with China because he was so unpredictable. Mm-hmm. It is also uh, a common type among American politicians of recent vintage. That word maverick came back oh, for man, Sarah did it Palin ever. and for uh, John, John McCain. And then, um, of course, some other leading presidential candidates might be or self-described as mavericks. They might see themselves as, um, as belonging to this character type. And, and there again, the limits of it become clear. It's fun to watch a movie about mavericks. It is much less fun to be ruled <laughs> by them. Right, right. And, and, and it's funny, the, the podcast uh, on the media over from uh, WNYC... Uh, put together a, must have been a 90 second montage of every at the time every one of the 14 or so presidential primary hopefuls referring to themselves as outsiders everyone from Donald <laughs> Trump over to over to Hillary Clinton if you can believe that that's insane that is insane but so so in that sense it is it is an american it is an american character type i mean this is this is something that we you know sam adams is is a is yeah. a maverick type from the from the Revolutionary War, or at mm-hmm. least our at least our contemporary portrayals of him. I haven't mm-hmm. I haven't done enough research to know whether he really was maverick. So this this is something Americans treasure. We treasure the mythical man who's incredibly good at his job but doesn't respect authority. Man, <laughs> what's interesting is Top Gun in its way subverts that character type because the motion of the movement or, or the movement of the the film, excuse me, the motion of the movement. The movement, <laughs> the movement of the film is is Maverick learning to not be such a Maverick. Yeah, but we'll talk yeah. about that more later. I'm sure. Have I left out any major representatives of this trope? Well, I mean, one one thing that you, that uh, I think ought to be taught uh, tossed in here is the sort of late 18th, early 19th century romanticism and. Um, especially German romanticism, that the, the idea of the Byronic hero, right? Who, yeah, who charts his own course and goes his own way, and um, I mean, there there is a a petulance and sulkiness that is so off putting to me and Tom Cruise's character in this movie 
that a hundred years before that would have been the Byronic hero being picturesquely melancholy off by his lonesome because he doesn't want to play by everyone else's rules. It, it is deeply mm-hmm. childish in the way that American culture is often deeply childish. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, you know, a more recent film example would be um, Iron Man in the in the Marvel movies. He he is a he is a a, a maverick character, chaotic mm-hmm. neutral. Mm-hmm. I mean, is the is the the D and D alignment we're talking about here, right? Right. Chaotic Which neutral. Is be- it, it seems like in the forthcoming Civil War, he's going to shift to lawful neutral, though. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah. certainly does in the um, in the comics. Mm-hmm. Although it's not because he believes in the law. It's it's because he um, he thinks this is the best way to play, so I would say he actually mm-hmm. shifts to true neutral, or maybe neutral good. <laughs> <laughs> now, now now that we're uh, you know seeing the world through the lenses of uh, the player's handbook, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there are worse lenses. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. That's nice. Um, David, I want to shift to the other side of this rebel coin. You can't be a rebel without some rightful authorities to buck. Mm-hmm. So talk for a little bit about the ways that Stinger and Viper and Jester provide different kinds of foils for Maverick. Um, well, first, I can never keep track who these people are. <laughs> well, I, it's funny, David, because... The, One of these is bald, and the other two are in charge at Top Gun School, and I can't yeah. remember yeah. which is which. <laughs> well, it, it occurred to me on this viewing... That uh, every time I see the principal on Back to the Future, that's Stinger in my mind. Oh, it's and true. I, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. And, Mr. and it Strickland. occurs to me that, yeah, that yeah. when uh, Michael sees Stinger, he sees the principal from Back to the Future. So it's true. It, it's one of those funny casting realities. <laughs> nice. Um, one of, I mean, yeah, I mean, just extending, uh, uh, continuing to follow a thread that Michael started in his answer to the last question uh this is we don't get to see that the maverick is right in this movie um this is not a film in which you know the loose cannon the cop who doesn't play by the books ends up being successful because he doesn't play by the books this Mm -hmm. is not this is not dirty harry um this is not, you know, Murtaugh at the end of Lethal Weapon 2 where the South African guy says, diplomatic immunity, and then he shoots him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, this we, do, we don't get this uh, the confirmation of that aspect of him because the more we go in this film, the more we realize that, yeah, there's it's not just authority, it's, it's rightful authority. Mm-hmm. And that each of these characters maintains attention uh, in their relationship to Maverick that's actually grounded in a desire for his good mm-hmm. because they see they see raw talent they see they see all of this potential that is being wasted because it is undisciplined um, and because it, so, so that they become voices not just of authority you should do things this way here is the book follow it but they become voices of prudence mm-hmm. and wisdom, experience, especially the Top Gun school guys, because they keep reflecting on their own, their own past, their own experiences as fighter pilots, and they are sitting further down a track that Maverick is on, and they see him 
taking these trajectories that are gonna that 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 will end up being tragic. Um, but uh, the you know that it it becomes much more paternal if that um, than it than it does just you know boss and employee or or what whatever it's not they're not just the law if that makes sense mm-hmm. oh it makes plenty of sense because the very little character development you get from Maverick is mm-hmm. the revelation that he has you know this anxiety about living up to his own father's legacy so these guys really do serve as father figures for him mm-hmm. well because they also mediate his own ability to think carefully about his father because mm-hmm. there's this, you know, there's this mystery about what that legacy even is, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's interesting because one of them, uh, oh, is it is it Viper who's the head of the school? I can't remember the mustache one. Yeah, mu- mustache man. Is that yep, Tom that's Scarrett, Viper. right? Yeah. Yeah, and then and then bald guy on aircraft carrier. Stinger. Okay. Mr. Strickland. All right, and then and then there's the guy who seems to function mostly as an in the cockpit foil, right? He's the teacher who who flies against them in their, um, uh, in in the, uh, I, I guess the test the the testing phase. You know uh, what I think? That's uh, Tom Skerritt. School. No, it isn't. It okay. isn't. That's Jester. Sorry. And I mean, I and and that's you know a a minor source of amusement because he is the character least capable of making a joke. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I thought he was uh, I, I, I found him particularly interesting because there he is literally functioning as the the opposite. He's literally functioning as the counter. Um, it's, it's not just the you should do things this way. I don't want to do things this way. It's that he's he is literally functioning as the enemy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that, I'm kicking your butt because you're not playing by the book. Yeah, well, and I and I and I'm kicking your butt because I want you to be able to, to level up and kick my butt. Like mm-hmm. it's it's it, it's his goal. His 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 good is Maverick's. Uh, Maverick's good is his goal. Anyway, mm-hmm. I I I like that about this movie. That that ultimately that that kind of that kind of relationship is set up. It's not just um, what frankly is kind of the cultural default, which is that going by the book is always bad and stultifying and authority is always appropriately bucked. Mm-hmm. Michael, you got anything to add? Not particularly. Yeah. I mean, I, and you know, I, I, it, it didn't occur to me until I watched it this time because uh Christian humanist bingo didn't exist the last time I watched it. Uh, but you know, the, the, uh, speech that Viper gives in the classroom when he's, you know, greeting the, uh, new Top Gun class, he says, you know, you all are the best of the best. We're going to make you better. And I thought, ah, after virtue, uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Um, yeah. now the the other thing, and, and this has no profundity at all, uh, but the, uh, campus minister at Emanuel college, David, you might've met Chris Maxwell. I think maybe so. Yeah. Okay, he bears a striking resemblance to Stinger. So, <laughs> uh, you know, so when I get in trouble with the campus minister, which of course never happens, uh, I, I do vaguely uh, feel like a Maverick and Goose, which is an interesting experience. Wait, so <laughs> your campus minister looks like Mr. Strickland? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, he, he shaves his head. He's got that pronounced uh, proboscis. 
Um, Does he call you a slacker? He doesn't do that, and also he doesn't, you know, cuss near as much as Stinger, but... (laughs) You know, uh, he he has that same sort of uh, intensity of pre- of presentation that uh, does make me feel like you know I'm 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 about to be flying a plane full of rubber dog crap out of Hong Kong. So I just imagined your son becoming a professor at Emmanuel and him telling you t- telling him <laughs> that uh, no Gilmore has ever amounted to anything <laughs> in the history of Emmanuel College. I I like that scenario. I really do. <laughs> nice. No. All right, all right, Michael. You've been waiting for this. I'm going to tee you up for the rant you've been waiting to deliver. When people who study the humanities watch Top Gun, we can't help but notice that Maverick's awkward romance with Callsign Charlie tends to take a backseat to the strange <laughs> relationship between Maverick and Iceman. All right, Farmer, talk grad school to me. Uh, I'm not going to talk grad school. I'm actually going to talk TV <laughs> tropes. TV tropes has a term for this. It is foyer, which they have now changed to faux romance subtext. Here's the background to that. The uh, the term for relationships that look gay but aren't is ho-yay. Foyer is when that happens with, uh, with enemies. By the way, a deep irony here. Uh, for all the homosexual subtext to this movie, the only actor... Only major actor from this movie that we know to be gay is Kelly McGillis. <laughs> there you go. The gay subtext goes well beyond Maverick and Iceman. Um, the studio executives uh, yeah. reportedly demanded more love scenes between Cruz and McGillis because that relationship with Goose was so homoerotic. <laughs> so I, I'm not making stuff up here. The, the, this, uh, this is deep in the movie. The volleyball scene is particularly infamous. Uh, there's there's a scene where where uh, Maverick and Goose play volleyball against Iceman and whatever Iceman's uh, co-pilot is called. Slider. Slider. Um, it is supposed to flesh out the rivalry between these people, but it is strangely gratuitous. It's a lot of really loving shots of these men's bodies. You might even call it the female gaze, or you would if there was any particular femininity to this movie. Um, <laughs> it, it is it is the male gaze turned upon men. And for that reason, I assume uh, a lot of women enjoy that part of the movie. Combine that with the really, really weird heterosexual sex scene, which is strangely lit. It's very gauzy. There's a lot of weird tongue stuff. It seems to have been directed and choreographed by a 12-year-old boy who had only the slightest idea of what heterosexual sex looked like. Combine the volleyball scene with that, and you can certainly see why people would think that this is a gay movie in some ways. There's also a lot of references to butts and to male genitalia. Like, like way more than the average action movie. We are way more in in like locker rooms with towels and tidy whities than I ever had any desire to be. Yeah, and maybe that's just how maybe that's just how locker rooms work. I don't know. I did, I never spent time in a locker room, so I don't. Maybe maybe that subtext is always there. The way I read this is hyper masculinity with nowhere to go, so it turns back on itself. Uh. And in that sense, there's probably an interesting paper to be written about the connections between this and the Iliad, because mm. the relationship between 
Maverick and Goose is not a million miles away from the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus. Mm-hmm. Not a million, no. <laughs> I, I, I have to point to a famous scene uh, with Quentin Tarantino as an actor in the movie Sleep With Me, where he goes on a long rant about the gay subtext of this movie, a long R-rated rant, I should say. Uh, and he calls it the story of a man's struggle with his own homosexuality. I don't know that I'd go that far, because like, I, 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 I think it's... I was going to say it's all subtext, but it's kind of subtext become text. I don't think the movie is meaningfully. <laughs> I don't think the mo- movie is meaningfully about homosexuality, I, I, but like it, it clearly exists within the movie, right? It, it's very difficult to see this movie <laughs> and not think there's something more than um, animus between uh, Cruz and Kilmer, and there's something more than friendship. Between Cruz and Anthony Edwards, <laughs> or between their characters, yeah, yeah. There's a long-standing rumor that Tom Cruise is gay, and I won't speak to that because he's very litigious about it. Um, <laughs> but, but, but I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder if a lot of that comes from this movie, mm-hmm. and people being unable to separate. Yeah, to me. A, a lot of it, a lot of it, to me, reads as as kind of naivete of, oh yeah, they're just a bunch of big strong men playing volleyball together. Look at them being athletic, and they're very strong and and men and and, <laughs> huh? I would huh. definitely say that the filmmakers were not trying to present it that way, and it just kind of happens. It's like an you're right. There's a there's a weird sort of innocence about it, which is weird for a movie that is so vulgar. Hmm. It, it just strikes me as not as grown up as it wants to be. Well, like I said, like I said about the sex scene, it, this is like a twelve year old boy's idea of what adult masculinity looks like. And we'll kiss a lot, and then the scene fades, because that's all I know. Right, right. Oh, <laughs> so much tongue stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> I, I've really got nothing to add, guys. <laughs> so let's... Let, 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 let's actually explore that Achilles thing for a moment. David, if we're watching closely... <laughs> the most prominent conflict in this movie really isn't between the Americans and whatever unidentified MiG pilots are out there in the sky, but it's between those rival pilots that we've been talking about. Uh, Does this have anything meaningful in common? And you've already kind of said that it's not far from Achilles and Agamemnon, Iago and Cassio, Beowulf and Unferth, David and his older brothers. Does this Mm -hmm. movie participate in or just plagiarize from this long tradition of allied rival literature. I mean, I, I don't want to say plagiarize from because I really can't imagine that uh, the folks putting together this screenplay were like, you know what? I really want to sort of get the classical tension between characters like Beowulf and Unferth into this <laughs> film. This film needs its unfirth. I don't think that was a thought that ever crossed anyone's mind at any point in the production uh, of this film. Although, although I will say, I mean, <laughs> prepping for this episode, I mean, Iceman and Maverick, I mean, you could make the case. Oh, you can make the, yeah, oh yeah, you can absolutely make the case. But I think it's, you know, I, th- I just think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's tropage. Right. 
Um, yeah, it's it's about as likely as a willing anything in this movie. <laughs> right, right. Um, but you know, I, I I do think it participates in it in an in an interesting way. This is less like Beowulf and Unferth. I mean, just just kind of walking through them. I don't. I'm not going to say a lot about Iago and Cassio because Iago is so transparently evil. Mm-hmm. Um. And I don't think that's the relationship that's going on here. Beowulf and Unferth may be closer because Unferth is like, you don't have game. And Beowulf is like, yes, I have game. And you killed your brother. So I win. Um, Achilles and Agamemnon, that's a power thing. Uh, The one that I think is probably the closest analogy is the stories um, sort of after the Iliad of the rivalry between Ajax and Odysseus. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Um, Achilles is killed by Paris, and uh, uh, Ajax and Odysseus team up to retrieve the body uh, and ultimately have a rivalry over who gets Achilles' magical armor. And Odysseus wins through charm, and Ajax cannot handle it and ends up uh, ends up committing suicide because uh, he he feels like his own reputation has has been so slighted um, uh, in you know b- because because Odysseus was given preference mainly because of the the quality of his rhetoric right um, so that we see him in uh, you know in in Virgil's Aeneid uh, uh, if I remember correctly you, you you see Ajax stalking around um, anyhow so biting his lip yeah yes yeah, I'm mm-hmm. so mad. I'm so, I hate you guys so much. Urgh. There's so much lip biting in this movie. <laughs> well, or, or biting, biting, right? Like Iceman's weird teeth thing. I... <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'm like, I'm like, what is what? What was that? <laughs> Val Kilmer looks like he's been constipated for about nine months in this movie. <laughs> he really does. But he does that. He does that pin thing. The pin thing is cool, right? <laughs> that's that's actually pretty cool. Anyway, um, what I think is interesting about this is that the rivalry isn't just about who's better. It's that uh, around about the halfway two-thirds mark, uh, Iceman actually becomes a voice of wisdom. Iceman's not wrong. Mm-hmm. right? He keeps telling Maverick, you are dangerous, you are irresponsible and you are going to get people killed and no one will want to fly with you because no one will trust you. <laughs> and everything he says is right. Mm-hmm. Right? So so at that point, it's not about... The, the, the relationship isn't just about who's better. It's about who's right. And Iceman's right. <laughs> he's, he's not wrong, right? So he, he isn't just, you know, he isn't just you know, Johnny and karate kids so that, you know, the wonderful climax is we get to see him, you know, you know, crane kicked. Right. Um, that's, that's not what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet like the, the thing everybody takes away from this movie is how awesome Maverick is. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the, that's the cultural understanding of this movie, which, which I think, that's I think that's the story the movie thinks it's telling. Go back, to, you know, going back to the idea that this movie doesn't always know what it's doing. 
Mm-hmm. I think I think it's telling the story about it thinks it's telling the story about how awesome Maverick is, but what it's but it's not actually doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that at the end, for me, the payoff is not that Maverick is better than Iceman. It is that Maverick has progressed to the point where Iceman will actually fly his wing. Mm-hmm. Anytime. You know, anytime. <laughs> anytime. They said lovingly. Um, so... As so, yeah. the sunglasses mysteriously appeared and disappeared. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do love the final carrier landing scene because they obviously just ran out of poops to give <laughs> as far as the editing goes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I, I do think we need to give this movie, this movie props. They didn't have computers to do all this stuff. How many mm-hmm. real fighter jet carrier landings would be featured in this film if it was done today. No, that's right, true. And, right. and we have to point out, there's going to be a sequel. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because we can't leave anything alone, no matter how terrible it was to begin with. There is going to be a Top Gun too, You're As there already me. was for Nintendo. Well, I knew there was for Nintendo. I thought maybe <laughs> uh, Paramount had better sense than Nintendo. Oh, you have to know they don't. They br- well, you know, true full, enough. Full, full House came back. Ah, point taken. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So anyway, any, anything else? Anything else about rivalries? I mean, I mean, obviously, Iceman and Maverick. That's that's the one that's the most tension. But I'll, it's it's as if everybody in this film is telling Maverick exactly the same thing mm-hmm. from, di- from different from different angles. Well, even even Goose wants him to be more responsible, but still kind of says, "Well, I'll stick by you." Everybody's telling him the exact same thing, but from different relational vantage points. It's interesting the degree to which Maverick is the center of every other character's world. Every other character exists to be a foil to him. Yeah, I mean that is that is kind of the uh, you know one of the career hazards of being a protagonist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. Oh shoot. But yeah, I I agree, David, that I mean, as with so many other things we've talked about today, what this movie ends up being, if you pay attention to how the story actually unfolds, is the fact that Maverick would simply end up being an arrogant nobody, except that there are people surrounding him that want to draw out whatever he has so that it can actually serve somebody else. Mm Mm-hmm. And I mean, right. I, it really is every other character in the movie that uh, plays that role. Yep. <laughs> well, Michael, this movie doesn't go anywhere near God, uh, except as the beginning <laughs> of a phrase that I won't say for fear of lacking our clean rating. Um, and our listeners probably already knew that and expected that. What I don't expect when I watch a military movie is how reticent the film is to advance nationalism as the God term. So... Start with the aftermath of the death of Goose. Help us think about what Goose dies for in this film and where the story derives what little gravity it manages. I think I'm going to have to disagree with your police work there, Nathan. (laughs) The military was closely involved with the making of this film. They used real aircraft. And 
as it turns out, it was a ridiculously effective recruitment tool. They actually put recruitment booths in the theaters that were showing Top Gun because so many people wanted to sign up for the Navy and the Air Force after watching it. Oh, you're kidding me. All right. Yeah, and Goose dies, but you'll notice there's no actual enemy in this movie. It makes um, it makes the military look basically like summer camp. And and Goose's death, far from being something the movie takes seriously, is really just a learning opportunity for Maverick. Um, mm-hmm. national, nationalism doesn't need to be a god term in Top Gun because it's the foundation of the movie. It's just assumed. Uh, the, the, the Soviets don't even really need to appear because what matters is America. Um, Maverick perhaps learns a better kind of nationalism because he learns to work in a team, but I think I think it's absolutely a nationalist movie. Hmm. In fact, I read that Matthew Modine was supposed to be Maverick, but he turned it down because it was too much of a propaganda piece for the military. Hmm. All right, David, break the tie. Well, uh, yeah, I think the nationalism is in there, but it's not argued for. It doesn't need to be argued for. Well, well. That, anyway, that, that 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 that's kind of my way of saying the movie's not about nationalism in the sense that it's trying to articulate. Articulate. Where did that accent come from? <laughs> I didn't, um, it, 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 it's it's not it's not meaningfully presenting or arguing for or. It, it it's 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 not attempting to persuade. It, it's assuming you're already there, right? right. It, it, I mean, it's like saying this movie. It's assuming you're already on the team. This movie doesn't doesn't use technology as a god term, so it's not really a movie about technology. It's a movie that assumes that you think that that military technology is awesome, man. It's it's yeah. it's not a god <laughs> term the way God wasn't a god term in the Middle Ages. Well, God didn't need to be. <laughs> It was the foundation of medieval life, or so I, you know, assume. Well, here's yeah. why I said that, Michael. I mean, in in what sequence do you get a sense that Maverick Goose or any other character does things for the sake of the nation? Yeah. Yeah. It was a libertarian nationalism. Doing, doing stuff for your own awesomeness is doing stuff for the nation, because that's what makes America great. Yeah. Well, here, here's the thing, though. I think there is a God term in here, and it is a sense of legacy more than mm-hmm. it's a sense of nation. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I mean, every, every segment of this movie is the old passing things on to the young. It's the young coming to terms with the, you know, the absent ancestor. It is, you know, mm-hmm. the, the film ending with uh, Maverick returning to Miramar so that he can become the jester to the next generation of Mavericks. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it strikes me that, I mean, legacy is the God term here in a way that, you know, just, just to pick another, you know, sort of Cold War movie at random, you know, Rocky Four, that that is, you know, USA is the God term in that movie. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if you think about why, why are these pilots fighting, why is the excellence necessary, um motivations are constantly framed in relational terms between you know between characters or or with a character with himself maverick wants to be the best because for for himself and somehow for the reputation of his father and the thing that he learns over the course of the of the film is not 
I need to learn to be the best for the sake of the good of my nation, but mm-hmm. I need I need to learn to to turn my excellence towards the good of the person who's flying on my wing. You know, it's it it it, it becomes more about but being trustworthy with with the persons who partner with you in the endeavor. It's sort of the the soldiers fighting for the people next to them, not necessarily for whatever abstract strategic goal is 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 in play well and again um, it makes the movie a period piece because there's not really a war going on in 1986 and you can say well the cold war is going on but even that is winding down i mean we're three years away from the fall well but they didn't know that uh i i i, I don't remember 1986 but my my sense is yeah they kind of did the, the 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 soviet union was less and less perceived as a threat I, I think people in the know knew that. I, I'm just speaking entirely from personal experience, Michael. When uh, mm-hmm. Ceausescu was deposed on Christmas Day, 1989, it was like a thunderclap in my house. Nobody saw that coming. Okay, I, I will. I'll defer to you guys. My one Cold War memory. I, maybe I've said this on the show before, but we got a uh, we got a Russian exchange student in my fourth grade class. Mm-hmm. And uh, the rumor was that he was a bodybuilder because all Russians were bodybuilders. <laughs> so I mean, I, I don't have Cold War memories. So I, I'll defer mm-hmm. to you guys there. Yeah, it, it'll be well, interesting to see Top Gun two or to hear people talk about it because there's no way I'm going to see that movie. <laughs> um, because now we we are in a war, you know, mm-hmm. and so it'll be mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see how the movie deals with that. Now is it is it an aged Tom Cruise starring in it? He is I think going to be a an instructor at Top Gun Academy or whatever. Oh dear heavens. So by they the really way, are resurrecting is, all it, of the 80s. By the way, it is against the rules at that uh, real life academy to quote this movie or to sing Danger Zone or uh, Take My Breath Away. It's, that you is get a awesome. Line. <laughs> what what about what about the boys playing together? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if uh, shirtless volleyball was part of their curriculum there. <laughs> yeah, the, the fa- okay, the the most implausible thing to me in this whole whole film is Tom Cruise playing volleyball above the net. Yeah, it's true. That must be. They must have really lowered the net for that scene because Tom Cruise is like what five six. About that, he's a little bitty yeah, guy it, it, in boots. <laughs> <laughs> they should have made Prince Iceman. <laughs> just tower over him. Yeah, because Val Kilmer's not a small guy. Oh man, I want to yeah. see this movie with Prince as Iceman now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah. Well, Michael, let, let's head for the door here. Or actually, we'll, we'll go to David. I asked Michael the last one. Uh, beyond the Iceman weirdness, which we, I, I think, have treated uh, thoroughly, uh, this film definitely presents an ethos, in spite of its reductionism, or perhaps because of it, that cinema has made a project of questioning in the decades since. So as we head out the door here, let's each talk about a film or two since 1986 that calls Top Gun into question in an interesting way, and recommend something to look for as our listeners consider the two side by side. Go ahead, mm-hmm. David. Well, I, I, just because of my viewing habits, um, f- trying to think of films that called Top Gun into question was 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 kind of a 
was kind of a challenge for me, but just just because I don't watch lots of movies that could be categorized as such. So I'm going to pitch um, uh, one uh, a novel, uh, which is a a serious observation, and then a video game, which is un, an unserious observation. Um, Ender's Game by mm-hmm. Orson Scott Card. Uh, is about uh, the 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 planet is under threat. They they made a movie of this recently, so I guess now it counts. But I haven't seen the movie; can't vouch for it. But uh, the planet is under threat, and only uh, only if they develop um, their best of the best, promising young minds into military thinkers who can you know function as. Uh, pilots and officers in, you know, space navy battles, um, will they be able to um, win this war? So there's a kind of orbital Top Gun school, except it's not twenty year olds; it's seven year olds. Uh, you know, six, seven, eight. Right? It's it's children because it's because mm. the the education is going much much further down. And um, because of the because of the structure of the novel, um, narratively, there's this uh, constant insertion of of italicized text, which is dialogue between adults connected to the school who are talking about self-consciously about the ways in which they are manipulating the ways in which they are stressing and pushing to the edge all of these children in the hopes that they will then develop in ways that will be strategically useful. Um, uh, Whereas Top Gun depicts it as like the awesomest summer camp with jets. (laughs) Uh, uh, Ender's Game is very self-consciously about showing how this 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 school is is treating these young people as assets and as tools to be broken and refashioned into better tools. And all of the grown-ups involved, all of the teachers involved, are incredibly conflicted about their role doing that. But they still do it because they see the strategic urge of the moment or, or the uh, urgency of the moment. So uh, I, I don't see um, uh, not, not that not that Ender's Game is a precise response. I don't think that the dates actually work on that. Um, but the the ideas that are in Wing Commander or not Wing Commander the the ideas that are in uh, in Top Gun are pulling up against. Uh, the ideas uh, in Ender's Game in some really interesting ways. Um, the one that I would pitch in jest is the Wing Commander series of, <laughs> of uh, video games. <laughs> yes, it is a space uh, space fl- uh, combat flight simulator um, in which uh, the, their interesting thing is that you always get assigned a wingman. And one of the potential wingmen was Iceman. And I learned from that game that wingmen are a really annoying liability because they are always worse than you. And so to me, um, playing Wing Commander was basically a series of fights and funerals. And uh, yeah, like I didn't really... Like Slippy the Toad from uh, Star Fox? 
<laughs> yep. Yeah, kind of like that. Yeah, all all my all my wingmen died in Wing Commander. I because I just did not have the patience with defending them. I did not learn Maverick's lesson. Is Wing Commander <laughs> all your base or belong to us? No, that's Zero Wing. Gotcha. That's a, yeah. That's that's. And I, and I only know that because when I teach uh, old English, that's what I use as my example of what happens when you don't pay attention to uh, word order and syntax. <laughs> so Michael? I wanted to talk about a series of movies in the last decade or so that that present alternate visions of masculinity, and I'm talking about like the the vaguely Judd Apatow movies. I mean, he's directed I don't know four or five, but there's a whole cluster of movies that deal with male friendships that are semi patterned on his movie, The Forty Year Old Virgin, um, in which the the men in that movie begin with a really specific view of what masculinity looks like. And it's not exactly Top Guns because it's not about physical feats exactly. It's it's more like, certainly there's a sexual component to it, but there's a there's a famous scene in, in The 40-Year-Old Virgin where Paul Rudd and another character go back and forth about what makes the other person gay. And by the end of that movie, you get this this vision that masculinity doesn't have to be hypersexual to be legitimate. And the Steve Carell character ends up not having sex until he's married. And it's it's not exactly played for laughs. And th- this this sort of tension goes throughout all the Apatow movies until I think the, the highest form of it is in this movie, uh, I Love You Man, um, which is not Apatow, but which exists in that universe somehow, wherein Paul Rudd <laughs> doesn't have any male friends. And so he doesn't know who's going to be his bachelor or uh, what, what is the... Uh, Best man. Best man. That's the word I was looking for. At his wedding. And so he has to kind of try out all these men, which means trying out all these different visions of masculinity. Until he hits on Jason Siegel, who uh, who is effeminate in a lot of very interesting ways and masculine in a lot of other interesting ways. So I, I think I Love You Man is actually a pretty good movie and has some interesting things to say about what it means to be uh, an American man in the 21st century. It is also very R-rated. <laughs> Do they play volleyball? They, you know, they might. I don't remember. <laughs> Nathan, what do you got? The one that I had in mind uh, is, is not what I would have expected uh, when I, you know, first sat down to see it, uh, and it is the first uh, Daniel Craig James Bond film, uh, Casino Royale. Interesting. And and here's why: because that film. Uh, Certainly unlike Top Gun, but also unlike the Pierce Brosnan and the Roger Moore and the Sean Connery James Bond films, is a really a meditation on what happens to your soul when you murder somebody, somebody for the government. Um, you know, you actually watch James Bond. You know, he's never innocent in that film, but as, as it rolls along, he sinks deeper and deeper into being simply an instrument of the will of the government. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, it's, I mean, among the darker James Bond films, really. Uh, and for that reason, you know, I, I think that it presents a, a fascinating foil to the, you know, super awesome summer camp, to, to use David's wonderful phrase, that you see over in Top Gun, right? I mean, the, the very first sequence of the film, uh, you watch a young James Bond uh, in 1989. So, you know, they start this James Bond after the Cold War ends. Uh, strangling somebody to death 
and then just minutes later going in and hitting his actual mark with two bullets at point blank range. And because Daniel Craig is, is such a skillful actor, I mean, you, you really do sort of watch his soul go dark as he does these things. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think that, you know, as far as the ethics of killing in behalf of an authority higher than yourself, uh, it's definitely a movie that, that meditates on it in a way that, you know, Top Gun just utterly dodges. Uh, <laughs> so, at any rate, you know, the, the, this was an episode, of course, to, uh, you know, fire a shot at uh, Michael Farmer. So, uh, I think we ought to let him uh, handle the next show. So, Michael, what are we doing next week? We're going to be doing one of our yearly uh, Christian rock album episodes, and so mm-hmm. this year we're going to talk about the 1995 Vigilantes of Love album Blister Soul, so you should listen to that. It's available on uh, YouTube, it's available on Spotify, you can buy it from iTunes and probably Amazon and uh, you know wherever else fine records are sold, but that's what we'll be talking about next week. Right, so uh, tune in, listeners, so that Michael can make me describe the uh, instrumentation on another rock album, because that's always so entertaining. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, Until you listen to that episode, of course, you can find us on uh, ChristianHumanist.org on the web. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, Each of the programs on the network has its own Facebook environment, save for Christian Humanist profiles, which we probably ought to set up a Facebook page for that sometime, but we haven't yet. Uh, you can find us, you can email us here at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, and of course, as I always beg, you can go to iTunes, give us that five-star rating, write us a little review. That's the sort of thing that really diverts more listeners our way, gets more people into the conversation. And that conversation about, uh, philosophy, theology, literature, and, uh, really bad Cold War movies, uh, is really what we're about here. Christian Humanist Podcast is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. Amber Lee Copeland is our intern. And I am Nathan Gilmore in behalf of David Grubbs and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger. <laughs>